Hello and welcome to Middle School Season 3, Episode 5. I'm your host, Dario DeVette, and this week we're doing things a bit differently. This week, we welcome award-winning music tech journalist Sherry Hu to discuss the influence new digital experiences are having on artist monetization, how this impacts the future of the music industry, and where video games and social media fit into it all. It's a pre-recorded fireside chat together with my colleague Vinay Singh, but I will be rejoined by Farhan in future episodes. Enjoy. Thank you so much, Vinay and, and Dario. Thanks so much to everyone for tuning in to this conversation. I'm super excited. Um, yeah, I guess as a brief extension on that introduction, I have been writing about the intersection, the intersection of music and tech for the last five years. And I started out as a freelance writer in the traditional sense. So writing a lot for major entertainment and business publications like Billboard, Forbes, Music Business Worldwide, um, also publications on the music side like Pitchfork and NPR Music. And then in February of last year, I shifted to trying to monetize my own newsletter. And as of around February, 2020, I've been working on my own newsletter full-time. It's called Water and Music, uh, as you see on this slide. And it focuses on deeper trend analysis and reporting in music and tech. And by that term, um, I, I try to cover as much as I can in that category. So everything from the latest music startups that are coming up, um, solving interesting issues in the industry to kind of all the way at the top, how major companies like Spotify, Apple, Amazon, um, how they incorporate music into their strategies as well. Awesome, thanks Sherry. So I think maybe before we kind of get stuck in, maybe it would be helpful to do some basic music business 101. So perhaps we can kind of kick off with maybe how artists make money and how long artists typically take to get paid. Sure, uh, it's a very uh, seemingly simple question, but it's actually quite um, complex. I think uh, it was in like early 2010s that this uh, advocacy organization called the Future of Music Coalition tabulated all of the ways that um, that artists can make money. And this was around like 2010, 2012, and they counted 42 different revenue streams for artists. And I think it's only really grown since then. Um, and I think there are many reasons for that. One, um, I think at its core, the music business is one of intellectual property. And there are so many different, um, I guess, sources of revenue you can get just from monetizing the copyright that you own. So whether that's streaming income, um, publishing income, like getting placed in um, film or TV, um, not just releasing new music, but um, selling your old music. There's really big news this week around Taylor Swift's um, old masters being sold to Shamrock. So I think that's, especially in 2020, an increasingly large, increasingly large revenue stream. And then, yeah, so there are dozens of more examples just on the IP side. And yeah. then I think the way that so many artists um, pre-pandemic were making a lot of their money is through touring. Um, so through a combination, I guess, in that ecosystem of ticket sales, um, merchandise, fan meet and greets and there's more I guess relational and um I guess like more reliant on time as opposed to buying like physical objects or just streaming actual songs um and as as we'll talk about later in this conversation a lot of that has shifted um not all the value but basically all of the activity um because of the pandemic has shifted from in-person live shows to online live streams and that's something that artists are actively figuring out as well Sure, sure. And in terms of that payment cycle, I mean, you, you're reading an increasing amount of literature that payment cycles are very long and it puts a lot of financial pressure on an artist. 
For sure. I think this is, um, especially in the era of apps like TikTok, which I feel like have continued to blow up this year, it's it's a really important point that is not often brought up in conversations about the industry, is that the, the financing and the payment around culture has definitely not caught up to the speed of culture. Um, so as an artist, it's, it's super feasible that your song might go viral um, on TikTok overnight. And then not only that, but you also see pickup on Spotify or Apple Music. And so your music is actually generating streams. But depending on the territory you're in, depending on the distributor you're using to um, put your music out there, you might not actually know the value of that virality and how much money you're generating in royalties until two, three, four months out. Um, in, in some cases, I've heard even like six to 12 months out. And, and that's if you're an independent or DIY artist. Um, if you're signed to a record label, uh, very often labels only pay out like uh, around like twice a year if you're lucky. Um, and if you've recouped on the advance that uh, the label gave you as part of the deal. And so I think there are a lot of also like steps and intermediaries along the way that impact the length of that payment cycle as well. Sure. It's crazy. I mean, there's this talk about how the industry has been in a decline for 15 years and we've heard that digital streaming services or DSPs are saving the industry. Uh, how true is that really? Yeah, I've, I've seen I've seen that headline um, quite a lot, especially. Uh, so I guess if you look at global recorded music revenues in the aggregate, so this is including um, all major labels and also independent labels on a global scale um, in the wake of Napster and piracy and peer-to-peer -peer file sharing, the, the recorded music industry was essentially on a 15-year decline, almost like total consecutively between 2000 and 2015. And it was only starting in 2015 that largely thanks to streaming subscriptions, um, revenue from those sources actually started to offset the decline in, um, in physical sales. So like CD and vinyl sales. And um, so since 2015, we've seen year over year increases um, every single year. And I think that's why a lot of these headlines are out there saying that streaming has saved the industry. But as as always with any kind of financial data like this, like that surface level number only tells part of the story. I think if you look at the artist level in terms of um, what percentage of revenue they generate from streaming, uh, I would say it's very likely that it's a small minority, probably like 10 to 20%, um, just because the margins are so low. Um, the, the streaming model, more than many other models that preceded it, um, rewards scale just because you're only getting paid a fraction of a penny per stream. Um, yeah. So especially especially this year, I think that's that gap is something that a lot of artists have had to reckon with, especially now that they don't have access to touring as another source of revenue. Yeah, sure. which, which we're going to kind of really dive into. But I guess maybe I'd be curious not to put you on the spot, but to put you on the spot to tie all that together. So Fleetwood Mac's dreams, top of the charts, thanks to the TikTok video uh, as a band, ignoring kind of the band dynamics that exist, which is hard to do with Fleetwood Mac. But like, do you think they made $100,000 over the virality, a million dollars? Like, what's the ballpark of like, you know, that's the dream, right? A library song all of a sudden goes to the top of the charts. Like, what does it mean in dollars, would you say? Yeah, um, I think that's, that's a really good example, because I think that points to the power of something like TikTok in a way that in for better or for worse, you have very little control over to your point. Um, my hope is that uh, by now Fleetwood Mac would have recouped on the advance that they got from their uh, initial <laughs> label deal because it's been a long time. If not, there's some problem there. Um, yeah. But so I assume they recouped and um, I'm actually not sure about the uh, total 
stream count, but to, to be able to like earn a hundred thousand um, dollars from streaming, I believe um, you have to generate like close to a hundred million uh, streams off of your catalog. And, and that's also assuming that there's no middleman. So that's, so the average per stream rate can be anywhere from 0.002 to 0.005 cents per stream. That's the range that I hear often on Spotify. Um, so with that in mind, um, yeah, so if you're not signed, you would have to generate like around 100 million streams to get to that point. And then um, even, and, that, and then that's assuming that you keep 100% of the money, whereas in a lot yeah. of label deals, traditionally, yeah, the, the major label would take 70 to 80% of revenue and leaving the artist only with 20%. So I would say the actual dollar amount that the band members got is, is much lower. Yeah, which is sobering. But I think also kind of taking that and tying it to the other thing that you were talking about, how, you know, kind of touring, which was the way in which artists got to have a direct relationship with their fans, but also kind of directly monetize it is, is I mean, I think we got to talk about everything today in both in terms of COVID, but in, in terms of kind of broader trends that were happening even before COVID and, and kind of artists wanting to find ways to have more direct and more scalable relationships with their fans. A big area is live streaming and the technology has kind of really improved over the last five and 10 years to allow that. So I guess maybe to kind of dive into our first you know, big topic for today, I guess maybe set the stage and help us understand how that evolution of, of more digitized live events has been evolving. How's that been accelerated or affected by, by COVID and, and, and kind of where you see it going in the short term? For sure, yeah. So uh, I think the, the history of live streaming is super interesting. I think as with any new technology, music is very often one of the first use cases. Um, so a more recent example, kind of as an aside, is like smart speakers. Music is consistently one of the top three use cases for um, smart speakers and voice enabled experiences. Yeah. Um, and then if you look back at the history of the internet, um, the first, some of the first internet forums were uh, just created by Grateful Dead fans or like rock fans are just talking about their favorite bands. Um, and this translates to live streaming as well. I think the first ever uh, live stream was around 1994, 1995 and was um, projected by this uh, this kind of random indie band in Xerox Park, I think they like got access to the technology and just broadcast it. It was only to like 20 people, but it was uh, super groundbreaking at the time. Um, so the, the technology has been around for a really long time. And if, if we think about the companies that are really big in this space, like um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, their, their live streaming features have been around um, for at most like around a decade. So it's like relatively newer, but um, definitely it's been around for several years, but at least from my experience, not many artists really invested in it as like a serious uh, kind of digital media experience in its own right. Um, a lot of artists used, a lot of artists use and still use Instagram lives just to like chat with fans, you know, and just like share yeah. news about their lives, but very few had really invested um, seriously in kind of more premium, more long form, um, online experiences that were more like online concerts. Um, and this year, kind of, I understand the, the major acceleration around live streaming in two phases. So when I like clearly remember when South by Southwest got canceled in mid-March and the week after that, Live Nation and AEG, the two biggest promoters like canceled all their tours. And then immediately so many artists and promoters flocked to live streaming to kind of put on uh, just to stage all the work they had already done, but in a virtual way. Yeah. And um, at the time it was very like heartening, it was really encouraging, but I think the mindset was also 
like I kept hearing the the sentence uh, and we'll be back in October. We'll see you in the fall. <laughs> and this is just like a stand in, um, you know, for something that will be away in six months. Unfortunately, for for a lot of different reasons, we're, we're obviously not at that point now. And so now I think people are in the mindset of, uh, OK, touring probably won't come back to kind of pre pandemic levels until earliest is like next fall. 2021. That's the timeline I keep hearing. That's a really long time to be without a really important revenue stream for artists. So, um, so now there's a lot more serious thinking about how to create online experiences that are actually interesting, can stand, um, you know, in their own right as a really good experience, are not just kind of like stand-ins for quote unquote the real thing. Right. And then importantly, that like fans are willing to pay for, and that can make money for the artists as well. Yeah, I mean, you see, you see the touring uh, kind of the touring model's been upended. Um, and you've seen this influx of new players in the space and they're trying to compete with the big players that you've mentioned. I mean, what separates a winner from a loser, really? Um, sorry, can you say the last part of that? So considering, you know, you mentioned the big players in the space, um, yeah. now you've seen this influx of new smaller players and investments from the likes of Scooter Braun or Justin Bieber, um, even Cisco Adler's no cap shows. Kind of what separates a winner from a loser in this instance? If okay, loser? yeah. Uh, th this is also, I feel like the, the kind of projections are always changing week after week, but what was really interesting to me, um, especially in the first half of this year, is seeing how slowly the major promoters actually were acting around live streaming. Um, I, I think because if you look at like Live Nation and through Ticketmaster, which they own, they have a lot of exclusive contracts with venues. Um, AEG through AXS tickets is the same. I, I think there are more of the mindset of like very traditional, let's just wait and see, you know, let's just stay put. Um, we're really big so we can afford maybe relative to others to like lose a lot of revenue and we'll just stay put. It wasn't until like the last two months um, that they've like really created a dedicated like live streaming section on their site and like started ticketing for online events. But this is so fascinating to me that um, and I think this is actually a, a huge source of opportunity if, if it's approached correctly in the live streaming ecosystem is that there's really, it, from my perspective, there's no one major player. Um, for yeah. better or for worse, it's super fragmented, which gives artists a lot of choice. So Live Nation and AEG certainly don't have, don't dominate the live streaming landscape by, by any means. Um, there are tons of both music focused and non-music focused like platforms that have come up. Um, you mentioned uh, Scooter Braun invested in Moment House, um, which is a live streaming platform that like really took off this year. And it's totally new, like founded by recent college grads. Um, and there are a lot of other kind of smaller services like that. In terms of what, what separates winners from losers, I, I think about three elements. So a lot of these uh, live streaming platforms, um, I feel like are relying a lot on talent so like they have exclusive deals with talent um, or like artists, uh, usually bigger artists to play a couple of shows on their platform. Um, Moment House, I guess has this approach. Um, Veeps, which has been around for a couple of years also has this approach uh, founded by Billy and Joel Madden. Um, uh, and, uh, oh yeah, but then, so that, that strategy is really expensive and is like hard to sustain if you're only, uh -huh. and if anything like replicates just the old model, if you're, only relying on these very expensive deals with talent that can be poached by any other service at any other time. Um, so yeah, so talent is important, but not the only component. Um, I feel like the actual user experience is super important. 
we've actually seen, saw this in gaming where there was a temporary kind of battle between Twitch and Mixer where Mixer poached away Ninja and a bunch of other major streamers um, who were exclusive to the platform for a while. But the user experience, I think, was just not that good. Um, and so users didn't feel as loyal to keep going to the platform. Um, and so, yeah, I think having one without the other uh, just leads to subpar experience. And then um, I think I'm still like mixed in terms of production value. I think you can have really compelling kind of intimate live streaming experiences that are just stream from your phone. If that's the intention, I think it could be super powerful. That said, if you're if you're paying for virtual Tomorrowland or if you're paying for another like online festival, I think there is an expectation that um, kind of viewing it at home on your computer or like projecting it onto your wall, it's like as visually mesmerizing as a Netflix show. Like that is essentially the standard that you're competing with at that point. So I think for larger scale events, the, the production value is also super important. Sure, we, can sure. we actually kind of just pull that thread a little bit, which is to flip the table. We've been talking a lot about it from the artist perspective, but, uh, and I think you brought up a really good point earlier, which is like music tends to be a leading indicator for where a lot of technology is going. You, you know, you cited a few references, Napster and so on. And I think that's where, you know, in particular, it, it's the things that we're talking about here, these trends are actually resonant for, you know, a lot of other industries because it kind of shows where audiences are going. So I guess from the audience perspective, what, what kind of changed behaviors that have been forced this year uh, by circumstances you think are actually kind of going to stick around? What's the, you know, how have audiences kind of reprogrammed their consuming of music and purchase behavior and, and what of that will stay? Yeah, uh, I think there are a couple of different threads that um, feel contradictory, but actually I think complement each other quite well. So, so one um, area that I've seen is that, um, I, I think so in general, in especially in a pandemic with a lot of people still um, working from home, not being able to like talk to people in person, at their core, what they just want is a human connection and like a direct connection to someone who they know is a human being yeah. and not yeah. a bot. Um, and the, the reality of the way that streaming services are structured is that um, there's no way for artists or fans to communicate with each other on the service. Um, it's super detached, uh, very lean back. It's, it's framed really as just like a consumer facing kind of catalog aggregation service, not like a social media service for artists. And then if you go towards, um, if you look at Instagram and Facebook, yes, those are social platforms, but I guess this is more from the, art, the artist perspective um, as probably most of the people in this call know, you have to pay to be able to reach all the people who follow you. And so it's far from direct in that sense, there's always some kind of hurdle you have to jump through. So I've, I've noticed on both the artist and then subsequently the fan side, um, a major shift towards uh, platforms where the connection is more immediate, um, it's more direct. And then also that has a direct tie to revenue as well, where the revenue impact just much quicker as opposed to waiting six months for streaming royalties. So, um, and I don't think this is limited to music, but music is a really great case study for um, platforms like Patreon, which have really grown significantly this year. Um, platforms like Discord, which uh, I think most of their growth this year has come from the gaming side, but tons of producers now have their own Discord servers. Um, and it's been a really great, that's been a really great ecosystem for fostering community, um, not just with fans, but also among them. So fans getting to meet each other. 
Um, I find it very interesting that buying music is in vogue again. Um, Bandcamp has gotten a ton of like, uh, I think they were on the front page of the Financial Times. They had like a huge uh, feature in the LA Times and they've been around for a long time, like around 15 years. But yeah. I think just the simplicity of what they offer um, is a really great selling point to artists who are just looking for that kind of direct connection. And through their Bandcamp Fridays initiative, I think a lot of fans have um, realize the value of contributing to artists in, in that way. Yeah, people are buying music and Netflix is launching a linear TV channel. It's like, yes, everything, yes. Everything old <laughs> is new again. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I, I realized I should have said earlier uh, for the folks joining that there is a Q&A uh, button tab on the bottom. Feel free to throw questions in there. And, and as we get closer to time, we'll, we'll make sure we make time to ask Sherry those questions. So please send us any questions you have. Jerry, I wanted to ask you, you know, just taking a step back, you talked about how um, the pandemic has upended the touring model. And, you know, with these influx of live streaming services, which many may have not prepared for, kind of how do you reckon that would affect uh, artist development? Yeah, um, I think this is definitely a question that's top of mind for most people in the industry today. Um, I think early... So I think one, I guess we should, I should like start and frame this question by even like defining artist development in the first place. Um, I think if you ask five different people, there are five different definitions for it, but I think at its core is a mix of um, kind of creative development. So nurturing your voice and kind of your tone and your personality, um, your brand, what that's all about. And then also audience development. So how do you start cultivating your, um, your first community of fans? Um, I think both of those, yeah, have been significantly impacted by the pandemic. Um, kind of prior to this year, I think artist development in both those senses was super touring centric. Um, there's a lot of value in just, you know, grinding, playing to even audiences of like 50 people in a bunch of these like smaller targeted cities, but um, in the process, really perfecting your performance style. And then also like getting to talk with new fans face to face and cultivating that organic word of mouth connection. I think people are still searching for what that equivalent is um, online. Not, not just a matter of, you know, how do we copy and paste the touring model into an online environment? Cause I don't know if that will work um, super well in, in, in particular, but how do we create the same environments for those connections to happen? And like, how do we get that same end result in terms of emotional impact um, on the fan? Mm. I think this is one area where uh, like live streaming platforms like Twitch can actually be valuable if it's in line with the artist's personality and their willingness to, you know, put themselves out there more regularly online as opposed to in a traditional stage environment. Um, but I know a lot of artists, producers especially, who I guess had never previously thought about building their own audience or brand, but just by sharing their creative process um, online have built a really tight-knit community of fans online um, on Twitch and, and Discord are kind of the top two platforms for me there. Um, one major challenge that I think I think a lot of artists face at, or at least like perceive that they're facing is the pressure to um, always be posting content online. I think art very few artists would uh, take pride in identifying themselves as quote-unquote content creators, um, but I think that's essentially what a lot of them have been pressured or forced to become. It's like, you, in order to, you know, maintain people's attention online, you have to kind of 
uh, beat the algorithms, always be posting, you know, optimizing your chance of getting picked up and going viral on TikTok or, or whatever other social platform of your choice. And so, yeah, it just creates a fundamentally different lifestyle for the artist that definitely is not right for everyone. Um, I think it'll still be several months before we see the impact of that in terms of, you know, like for the artists who released their first single this month, where they are six months from now and how they build audiences. My sense is it'll actually blur quite a lot with how social media influencers build audiences or how like gaming streamers on Twitch build audiences. I think because everyone is on the same platforms and kind of vying for very similar audiences, there'll be a lot more cross-pollination there. But yeah, I would say that the question is still, still in the open. Yeah, yeah. You talk about content creation from a social media perspective, but then you also have the likes of Daniel Ek, who was Spotify CEO, who was criticized for saying that it's not about higher payout rates, but it's about more output from musicians. So do we see an even greater effect on content creation? I mean, this in itself is a topic that's so detailed. I mean, you know, it's changes in the narrative of the industry and, and even song constructs as we've seen over the past decade. Uh, but just curious, if, if you have any thoughts on, on that angle. Yeah, I think uh, I think that specific interview, um, it's, yeah, there, there's no way where I think that looks, I, I, I think I think it's it's always, uh, it's always like not the ideal angle where a yeah. platform is recommending how artists should be behaving in general in a way that favors the platform and kind of just allows for more content to go on a Spotify. Um, yeah. And so I think, yeah, just no way where like the optics of that is is good. I think in, in general with, with, with artist branding and strategy, I guess how, how I think about it and also what I've learned through just interviews with artists and managers is that the, the most iconic and most long lasting artist brands always transcend the boundaries of any given app. Um, it's why I'm always kind of skeptical. I've heard the phrase uh, TikTok record come up over and over again this year, like let's make a TikTok hit or how do we make a song that's like optimized to go viral? I feel like that um, unless you really do have some kind of longer term strategy uh, and like kind of fan building strategy laid out, I feel like that that kind of approach is, is just destined to fail. Cause I mean, one, you're kind of building your strategy around virality, which is really difficult to control, especially on TikTok. But then, yeah. I mean, also, as 2020 has shown, uh, not guaranteed that TikTok will be around, you know, forever or like next year. And so I think I think it's always healthy to, I guess, start from a place of like, as an artist, what do you really stand for? What are you all about? What do you want to achieve through your music? And what do you want to communicate to your fans? And then be strategic about the platforms you use to achieve that uh, app independent goal, as opposed to only molding yourself to whether it's like TikTok virality or only molding yourself to a Spotify playlist. Again, that's something that is largely out of artist control in terms of how those are curated, um, how long those playlists last, et cetera. So I think it's always like thinking about the artist brand before and having the artist brand inform the tech strategy as opposed to the other way around. I think that is ends up being much more fruitful. So I wanted to go back, uh, and this is kind of a great segue into the, the second kind of major theme, which is around the kind of symbiosis between the music industry and gaming and social media. And they're obviously different, but uh, you know, they're kind of, uh, they're, they're related in the sense that it's newish in, in the way that it's working. But you know, you've, you've mentioned Discord a few times and, and kind of Twitch, and, and I guess I, I wanted to kind of home in on, on gaming in particular and, and, and kind of what 
that relationship has evolved to be. Uh, you know, obviously the kind of most recent example is Lil Nas X doing that massive virtual concert inside of Roblox. But you know, there's an example going back several years that most people probably don't remember of kind of a live stream inside of Second Life. So how how has that evolved, and how is it evolving? And and you know, are these kind of do you think destined to kind of live in parallel, meaning music and gaming live in parallel, or do you see there being kind of more and more very deliberate integrations at the company level between those industries? Yeah, I, um, I, I guess I didn't have the opportunity to like live through the second life, the, the second life wave myself, but I'm always fascinated because like going back to those examples, because so many of the similar conversations around what those kind of shows meant for the future of live music are actually super similar to what's happening now. Um, I do think, yeah, of course, the kind of commercial and cultural contexts are super different. So even like independent of the pandemic, I think last year you were seeing a lot of signs that major game developers like um, Riot Games, which owns League of Legends and Epic Games, which owns Fortnite, um, really wanted to expand their, their brand and reputation beyond just being a gaming company and being more of a pop culture company um, and kind of building more trust with their player base through expanding beyond just gaming into, um, into music and fashion and kind of many other realms of culture, especially for partnerships. Um, and so that's why you're seeing, so Fortnite um, has this party royale mode now where there's no combat. It's just a place for fans to, or for players, sorry, to hang out and socialize. And they have a dedicated stage um, in party royale mode now where artists like uh, Steve Aoki, um, Omar Apollo, BTS, Anderson Pack, like a pretty wide range of artists actually across genres have premiered videos or performed concerts there. Um, League of Legends, uh, they have a bunch of these virtual uh, like idol groups now, which is very fascinating to me. Um, probably one of the most active ones is, is KDA, which is a virtual K-pop group um, performed by real world artists. Um, but it, it, I think it, it's weird because I think the kind of the, the visuals exist in my mind solely to promote the game. Like you can buy KDA skins within the game. It's like a revenue generator for League of Legends, but their videos and like their songs on streaming services have their own followings independent of the game as well. So it'll be really interesting to see how that develops. So that, that's more from the gaming side. And then from the music side, uh, the pandemic has only exacerbated the fact that I think a lot of artists and music companies are looking to diversify their revenue. I think they look at the right. recorded music industry um, revenue, which I think was around uh, like 21 billion in the last year. And then they look at um, gaming industry revenue, which I believe was almost 150 billion. And they just look at that gap and that's not including hardware sales. So they, they look at that gap and they think it, it's just two totally different stories around uh, kind of experiences with online and, and digital culture. And so I think especially major companies see that and kind of want to uh, take advantage of or like have an upside, have a part in, in that upside as well. Um, and then in a pandemic, you know, if you're looking for more engaged online audiences, I think it's you, you'll be hard pressed to find an ecosystem as engaged as gaming in terms of just like daily usage, both with the game itself and then also with viewership on Twitch and, and those kinds of platforms too. Do you see that maybe any other live streaming platforms that are, are doing something special and building that same relationship like the gaming uh, platforms have? Um, special relationship with 
with the artists or I would say with, with the, with the I, I guess both I mean I would say probably fan centric to begin with but I mean just watching the Omar's X Roblox concert it was uh, yeah. I mean you talk about production value even now it's a different type of production value but it was still interesting enough to, you know to watch the whole thing even though it was 10 minutes and and it was just really pre-recorded music if anything yes and this is I I'm trying to find I'm still trying to find the best like terminology for this but it's why I've um realize like a concert is probably not the best uh, mm -hmm. term to describe whether it's the Lil Nas X uh, Roblox show or um, even like the Travis Scott Fortnite show, which is uh, very often framed as a concert. But yeah, to your point, it's totally premeditated. If anything, it's more like an interactive and immersive short film um, yeah. where, and it's not like the graphics are, like people are behind the scenes changing the graphics in real time. Yeah, I think everything was premeditated. What is, what is different from a show, which and is like exciting to me creatively, is the fact that as a fan, you know, in, um, in New York City, if you're to go to a show, you'd probably just be like crammed shoulder to shoulder with like all the other fans there, just like stand there. Maybe you can dance around, but you're mostly stuck in the same place. Whereas um, in a game, there's like so much more opportunity for exploration. Um, yeah. not, not only exploration of like a larger world, but also the ability to make like the artists actually in both of these instances, Lil Nas X and Travis Scott were definitely larger than life. They were like towering over the worlds in which these, these shows were situated. And so like allowing for those kind of creative leaps that would be difficult if not impossible to do in the real world. I think I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing more of those kinds of examples that like, and, and I think that goes back to the importance of not just replicating um, kind of real world experiences, because I don't think that's compelling. It's really taking advantage of the creative as well as commercial possibilities around the, the format itself. Sure, sure. I feel Maybe. like we did not get to spend enough time on TikTok. I would have spent half an hour on TikTok, but there's a lot of questions. Should we, should we maybe pivot to the questions? I want to make sure we get to them. Um, sure, yeah. Dario, do you happen to have them up or do you want me to? I do, I do indeed. Um, okay. Uh, First one really is focused on the Taylor Swift Shamrock sale to Scooter Braun. Kind of focusing on masters reselling, I know you've written about kind of uh, music royalties as an asset class. I've been very fascinated by the space myself. Are there any opportunities for financial innovation in the way that masters are, are being bought and sold currently that you've seen perhaps? It's a good um, question. So, if anything, in, in the music industry, the financial innovation that I see is less on the catalog side and more on actually like the DIY emerging artist side. I think the fact that if as an artist, um, even if you have like a pretty solid track record of like kind of year for year growth early on, if you're looking to get more financing for like your next album or just whatever project you want to work on, one of the only like paths, viable paths, and like the most culturally coveted paths is signing away the majority of your rights um, in a label deal and just like sacrificing yeah. so much. Um, there, there are a couple of startups out there who are trying to kind of reinvent the way that that works um, and, and present much more favorable financial terms for that group of artists. Um, the Music Fund is one such startup and, and there are um, music distribution services like STEM and Amuse who are experimenting with these kinds of um, products as well. Um, in terms of master reselling, I'm not, so I think the, I'm trying to like think out loud about this. I think the, 
I don't know if like innovation is the innovation is an interesting like framing for thinking about this issue just because um, it's probably the least risk averse kind of transaction that could happen in the music industry actually yeah. and, and I think that's why there's so much activity um, especially this year in a pandemic like a lot of these there are a lot of companies uh, whether in on the music side or on the finance side that still have a lot of money um, they just want to put it into assets that have a lot less uh, risk just by nature of how this year is going and I think um, whether that's you see like the, 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 the success of funds like hypnosis um, I think speak to this Round Hill, um, which is a competitor, just went public uh, this month. Um, and Shamrock, yeah, as, as um, we've mentioned, is like really accelerating their um, investments too. And also songwriters are, um, I think, more open to selling their own catalogs. I think in, yeah, in any other, in, or like in a typical world, you'd be like, why would you want to sell your catalog? You should hold on to it for longer if it's really valuable. Um, but but I think especially because so many other revenue streams in music are kind of shut down, especially in like yep. live space, um, songwriters, producers, artists are much more open to these kinds of transactions now. Yeah, that doesn't really answer the question of like financial innovation. Um, honestly, I think there's just a lot of hype right now and kind of like more emotional energy behind a lot of these transactions. Yeah. What I would like to see, and which I think we'll see as more of these companies go public is actual transparency on the catalog level of um, how well a certain sale does over time. So like there's actually very little data right now on, I don't know if Hypnosis will share this, but uh, Hypnosis say they bought, oh yes, they bought like RZA's um, publishing catalog. How well will that actually do in five years? I think there are very few funds that actually share that data. Um, so that's something that I would like to see. Uh, I don't know if that's like an outside tech solution or just these companies um, coming forward with that data. Sure, sure. Maybe a good follow-on from that. I was just reading down the questions is, is, is this person asked, how is the value chain of the industry evolving? Uh, are we seeing a major unbundling? And if so, are artists better positioned to regain more revenue control? I think maybe the implication of your last answer, Sherry, if I could paraphrase, is that in the areas that you might think there would be some unbundling, like the least risky asset class, there's not, right? It's kind of the, the, the catalogs are... Uh, um, uh, consolidated with a handful of players. So I guess our artists better positioned to regain more revenue control, you know, what can they do, you know, uh, baked into that answer somewhere is the fact that probably Taylor Swift is seeing very little to no money from the kind of continual sale of her, you know, her catalog, which is kind of interesting slash shocking. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I guess uh, this, this is related, but just like, yeah, as a matter of context, I think something important to keep in mind with whether it's, uh, yeah, all the stuff going on around Taylor Swift or like Kanye tweeting every page of his contracts and <laughs> like starting that whole fiasco. Um, both of those artists and many artists in that generation are kind of bound in yeah. contracts that they signed a decade plus ago. And, and I think the financial and um, kind of cultural environments uh, in the music industry at, at that time are so different from now in terms of like people even talking about artist entrepreneurship as a concept and like uh, accepting that as like more and more of the norm, more and more indie distributors coming up. It's yeah, just the landscape is so different now. Um, and I think a lot of artists coming up, I, I, yeah, I do think a lot of them are more educated about the fact that, for example, you could do, instead of like signing away your master ownership, you can do a limited term licensing deal 
where maybe like the major label will still take the majority of revenue for five years, but then after that, rights revert back to you and you have more freedom to do that. That's definitely more commonplace, um, especially among younger artists. And in terms of the value chain, um, there's, there's an analyst named Mark Mulligan who um, has, I think he just released a report on creator tools and he, I'm just thinking of this chart um, that he includes in the report that I really like. And it shows that every single step of the chain is being unbundled. So um, creative tools, there are like dozens and dozens of different tools, whether it's DAWs or like sample marketplaces like on Splice. Um, uh, and then at, at the distribution step, dozens of different distributors you can also use. Um, there, I think that is like super commoditized, like that specific service as well. Um, marketing, tons of different like advertising tools, fan engagement tools. Um, and yeah, so then, yeah, so at, at all those steps, artists do have a lot more choice um, and they do get to keep a lot more of the revenue as a result. It's just a matter of making the right choice and then you can have all the right tools, but if you don't have the right like mindset or strategy or team behind you to really use those tools correctly, um, that the impact is still minimal. So I think those steps are important, but absolutely, I think all the services coming up are trying to unbundle some part of that um, traditional chain. So we, so another question that's come in is um, probably something we should have asked actually earlier, which is, do you believe that live streaming as a revenue stream is here to stay post pandemic? Yeah, I think you actually may have asked it earlier. I just forgot to uh, to respond to it. So yeah, this is, this is I think the big, I think the really big question in the industry. Um, what, so what I've seen is that, so there are a couple of different um, avenues you could approach this with. On the venue level, I think just practically because there's so much unpredictability around when, you know, whether they'll get um, federal um, aid, whether they'll be able to open in the next like six to 12 months. A lot of venues I've talked to um, at all levels have invested more seriously in some hybrid strategy. So um, whether it's, you know, preparing for a limited run of offline shows that are all live streamed and like well-produced or just having a totally separate online brand of more regular live streaming experiences so they can build more international audiences and maybe that, um, you know, that can help um, bring more people in person to, to their, to their um, live shows um, in, in real life. So that, that trend I'm seeing. And so in that form of live streaming, I think it's definitely here to stay just for practical reasons. Um, on the artist side, I've seen, so I've seen a lot of artists who would have otherwise never considered live streaming actually really enjoy it and get a lot out of it. And, and so I think for those kinds of artists, um, it'll definitely be, and especially we're like far enough out into the pandemic where people have like built regular habits around a lot of these experiences. I think both artists and fans will be in the habit of treating live streaming as not, so not so much as like an outlet for performance um, or like putting on virtual concerts, but as just a really um, engaging way of communication and of kind of strengthening those relationships. I think live streaming in that form will be here to stay much more than um, like people opting to like tune into a virtual like festival as opposed to going in person or virtual concert as to going in person. I think that it's much easier to, to substitute that with the real thing. Um, but, but the power of online communication, I think that will be here to stay. Awesome. On, uh, another question that's come in is 
How has music licensing for TV or film media evolved, considering there's so much more and uh, there's more content than ever before? Has that created more opportunities to have another potentially more lucrative income stream compared to, let's say, a video streamer? Hmm. Um, yeah, so good question. So what, what I've seen is that um, there's absolutely so much more opportunity for sync licensing, um, licensing for film and TV, and that um, has kind of run in tandem with both the uh, rise of just influencers, creators, and brands on YouTube, um, like YouTube and Instagram, um, and then also uh, the rise of just uh, on-demand, more premium video services, so like Netflix, Hulu, um, HBO, like all of these services are investing a ton in and just like churning out new shows all the time. Um, all of those shows, vast majority of them need some kind of music. And so it definitely leads to a lot more opportunities. That said, um, with that expansion, I have heard, um, especially with like the wider range of Netflix shows, the average, um, or I guess the expected price for a sync license has gone down. I think just because there is so much supply. So I think there's that, that, that balancing act that is happening. Um, in terms of compared to um, video streamers, I'm assuming that uh, this question is referring to um, Twitch streamers, but I'm not totally sure. So I think I think there is a difference between the like sync licensing approach, which um, actually is still like a small part of um, like music industry revenue. It's definitely not the majority. I'd say it's like been less than 10% for sure, like around five to 10% um, consistently. Yeah. Um, but it's also like uh, something that you can't control as much compared to like if you have a Twitch stream, you can get like donations directly from fans, you can get direct subscriptions, you can do advertising, it's much more diversified. Um, and I think the the revenue you see it comes in much more in real time, whereas like the process of um, placing uh, I, I, the process of getting a sync place in is like much more drawn out and there are much more players involved in that. Sure, sure. I think we have time for, for one more question and, and, and that's really focus around the position of labels in, in, in the industry today. So you've had the Warner Music Group IPO this year, there's rumors of UMG or Universal Music Group IPOing in 2022. We've spoken a lot about digital service providers, gaming, social media, their influence, artist independence, is there still a place for labels in the music industry today and perhaps in, in the medium to long term? Yeah, I uh, I guess I have some more like general statements that then point to uh, labels specifically. Um, I think the, the power of uh, streaming services like Spotify or like what they've demonstrated is that like as any artist can, like any of us can distribute a song onto any of these services for free by tomorrow, by the end of this week, it just leads to so much noise. Um, the track, the, the, the stat that uh, Daniel Ek has thrown out is that there are over 40,000 tracks being added to, just to Spotify every single day. Um, so you can only imagine like the, the scope of, yeah, what that actually looks like elsewhere on the internet. Um, so with all that noise, uh, curation I think is um, more valuable than ever. I think this is the core thesis on which um, Spotify has kind of built its service more from a tech perspective. And then from a label perspective, I think they bring value, not just in um, curation, but also in um, whether it's like tech savvy or just like the buried non 
tech aspect of just like relationships and having access to um, certain like network, certain channels, whether it's certain playlists on Spotify or certain um, like channels like like um, like radio. I think you want to get placed on terrestrial radio. Um, unfortunately, I think major labels still have really like a stranglehold over that over that channel specifically. Um, labels do have uh, also, I think, much more robust international marketing, um, like I guess infrastructure. And so, if you're an artist who who has, uh, I guess, ambitions for more global stardom, and you're trying to understand the market in um, Asia or Africa or Latin America, all the major labels have offices kind of spread out there. And so I think they can um, handle that uh, more efficiently or at least at, at a deeper level. Um, and so it's good to have them as a partner for that. Uh, that said, I think like once you go below like the 1% of the 1%, so like artists who are like uh, not necessarily aiming for global stardom. Um, so, so something that I've seen is that uh, company lines kind of at, at those lower tiers are increasingly blurring. So tons of new management companies coming up will run their own labels. Um, and other way around, tons of labels will, uh, I guess, get into artist management because at that early stage, um, the, the, the I guess the ideal team around artists is not just releasing records. It's also artist development. It's also brand building. So there's a question of like among a label management company um, concert promoters, agents, like all of those people, especially now when everything is online, they kind of want um, an equal hand in artist development and shaping artists early on. So maybe it like won't be called a label um, five years from now, but I see like with, with those companies blurring, um, just having that kind of team around artists is still super important. So yeah, I, I do predict kind of more um, consolidation in that sense um maybe i maybe there's some like return of the 360 deal where like a company has like a stake in all of an artist's business but in a way that actually adds more value um i think that could could actually be pretty effective but yeah that's i think based on what i've seen in the pandemic all, all signs are, are pointing to that awesome uh i feel like just in that answer alone there's like five other panels that i want to do yeah. <laughs> the next one. The next one we should do should be like, what is the new payola? What's the new kind of tech mm. pay to play? But anyhow, yeah. I know we're out of time. Sherry, thank you so much for the time today. Thank you to all who joined. Uh, for those who do not subscribe to Water and Music, I highly recommend it. Uh, and follow Sherry on Twitter and everywhere else. Uh, as, as you saw today, she, she's quite brilliant. So there you have it, another epic episode of Middle School. You can reach out to us on Twitter on at middle school underscore music or find us on Instagram on at middle school. Ciao for now. Can I listen to your podcast?